Welcome to you all this evening. Welcome to the LSC. A special welcome to Professor Axel Honneth, uh, who will deliver tonight the last of this academic year lecture series uh, in the psychology uh, as social science uh, public lecture public lecture series. Before I introduce uh, Professor Honeth, let me just say a few words about the series. Psychology as a Social Science is a program of public lectures on the relations between psychology and the social sciences, uh, hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology here at the school and very generously supported by the Deputy Director's Discretionary Fund. This lectures aim to draw attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. They bring together psychologists, philosophers, and social scientists uh, to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and address topics that are central to both. They also seek to emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology here at the school, where from the mid-20th century onwards, uh, the vision and the project of a societal psychology took shape. This year's lectures have been very impressive and signal well, I think, to the future of the series. Highlights for next year uh, include Professor Michael Tomazello and Professor Bruno Latour. So watch the space and keep an eye uh, the school's website where all the information is. Now let me just, just say a few words about our speaker tonight, although he probably doesn't need introduction. Axel Honneth is Professor of Social Philosophy at Johann Wolfgang Goethe University and Director of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. Professor Honneth is one of the world's most distinguished social philosophers, a leading interpreter, and developer of the intellectual traditions of the Frankfurt School. In 2005, Le Nouvel Observateur included him in its list of the 25 great thinkers of the world and called him the new Habermas, a designation which I suspect should be received with a pinch of salt since Axel Honneth has both underlined and tried to remedy the problems he aptly identifies in the work of the Maître. Uh, Axel Honneth's work has been inspirational for psychologists and across the social sciences, both in the struggle for recognition, published in English in 1995, and in this respect, the normative foundations of critical theory, just out now with polity, he offers us a theory of recognition that combines the normative and conflictual elements of social line to underline the need for a critical theory with normative content. For social psychologists in particular, this resonates with the ethical imperative coming out of the deep psychology of self and other relations. The need to recognize the other, the need to learn how to take the perspective of the other. We're delighted Professor Honneth is contributing to the series and delivering tonight's lectures on the appropriation of Freud's conception of the individual self-relation. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome.
Thank you very much. Uh, I hope you don't mind when I'm uh, remaining seated because it's easier for me to read with uh, my reading glasses when I'm sitting. I'm very grateful to Sandra Jovielovic for having invited me and making this trip possible. Um, I hope I'm not disappointing her and you by not speaking directly on recognition. I mean, I can see why the notion recognition, as it was uh, created <coughs> by Hegel, could serve as a bridge between psychology and social theory, so between the individual and the social. And I always tried to develop the notion recognition in that direction as, an, as, a, as a means to overcome the split between the psyche and the social structure. <clears throat> but in this lecture, I'm more interested in another aspect uh, of recognition, namely not so much uh, what one could call intersubjective recognition, but what one could call uh, self-recognition. I think that an, an, an important element in humans' relationship to the world and to oneself is uh, what I would call uh, self-recognition, to recognize oneself. And I take uh, Freud as having created one of the most interesting conceptions of how to see this kind of self-recognition and self-relationship. This is very closely related to the topic of freedom, I guess. And so what I want to develop is Freud's <coughs> concept of the individual self-relationship and uh, the title of it, namely Appropriating Freedom or Appropriating of Freedom, relates uh, to what I take as being the core of Freud's concept of self-relationship. Only blind dogmatism can today still blind one to the fact that a string of premises of Freudian theory have by now become highly questionable. Developments in infant research, in developmental psychology quite generally, but also in evolutionary biology, have led to doubt being cast on central and basic assumptions of the psychoanalytic view of young children. Beginning with the assumption of a primary narcissism in which the infant is still supposed to experience, experience its environment exclusively as its own work, through to the claim that girls typically have penis envy, much of what was still considered relatively secured 50 years ago has become discredited. Even drive theory as a whole, which was after all the biological, biological foundation of the Freudian theory, today sees itself open to legitimate doubts. If one also adds to these growing concerns the revisions that have been meanwhile been made to Freud's work within the psychoanalytic movement itself, then one can, then one year after Freud's 150th birthday, one can indeed say that never since Freud's death have the future of his original theory and the chances of its being productively continued been as bad as they are today. <clears throat> the Zeitgeist also seems to agree with this extremely skeptical assessment. Not only can one hear on all sides that the number of patients prepared to undergo psychoanalytic treatment is dwindling, 
at least in Germany and I guess in the United States, I don't know about Great Britain, not only was laying into Freud's work more or less a journalistic uh, fashion until shortly before the just celebrated birthday, rather subjects themselves seem to be increasingly growing out of psychoanalytic culture because they are required to constantly readjust to an uncertain future and so hardly still, still feel an incentive to occupy themselves with their own past. So I would say the culture is, is referring more to the future. I mean, the future has to be seen as uh, something you have to be flexible for, but what is not really uh, uh, created is a culture of looking back to your own past. I mean, this kind of retrospective attitude, which psychoanalytic, uh, the psychoanalytic culture needs. The social benefit of a time-consuming, activity-blocking return to the history of one's individual formation has obviously lapsed, so that in our culture, psychoanalytic ideals are also becoming increasingly discredited. A widespread reflex reaction these days to this situation of growing doubt and marginalization, indeed of a downright threat to its existence, is for psychoanalysis to retreat forwards, namely into a core area of recent natural science. The central components of the original theory, the interpretation of dreams, the idea of repression, and the structural theory, are no longer to be defended on their own territory, but to receive confirmation in the framework of the exploding neurosciences. If one is to believe some of its leading representatives Psychoanalysis hopes to be rescued from the long-simmering crisis by the results of brain research. But then there is a threat, and this will be my thesis, of losing that element of Freudian theory which comprises its central leg legacy, one still valid today beyond all parts that have in the meantime surely become questionable. Namely, the insight that the human is always a divided inwardly ruptured being, yet one which, thanks to its inherent interest in extending its inner freedom, has the ability to red reduce or even overcome that rupturedness through its own reflective activity. In all components containing this one anthropological idea, Freud added to the traditional image of humans in essentially new thought the core of which is a respective extension of the idea of the human self-relation. The subject gains access to his psychic activities only from the inner perspective of an already familiar idea of his own freedom. The latter more or less forces him to turn retrospectively to the separated off aspects of his own life history so as ultimately by way of the remembering thus embarked on to belatedly appropriate what had been separated of. It could also be said that only on the condition of a critical appropriation of her own process of formation does the human size the opportunity provided to her for freedom of the will. However, access to this reflective movement is fundamentally blocked for brain research. 
although it can perhaps make out such a movement's neuronal circuits thanks to its imaging methods, it cannot define the movement's performance itself because it lacks the condition for identifying in the brain the reflectively effective idea of one's own freedom. In the observer perspective of brain research, that feature of the human person disappears, which had, almost as a matter of course, being its driving force for Freud. The self-activating anticipation of a freedom of the will, which, faced with subjectively experienced restrictions, motivates one to set about the process of working through one's own life history. In the following, I want to attempt to reconstruct this complex, multi-layered conception of the individual self-relation by first setting out Freud's turn to the pathology of the normal personality. The the founder of psychoanalysis developed his theory, the less he shied away from also drawing conclusions about the healthy, healthy now, in, in Marx's subject's irrational centrifugal forces from his findings about the causes that generate neurotic illness. That will be the first step. I mean, the first step will uh, try to show that Freud has a growing interest in finding out, let's say, the ruptures of the normal subjects, the divisions of the normal subjects or separations of the normal subjects. From here, Freud saw himself forced to adapt his concept of repression and of defense to the conditions that had to apply to the apparently intact subject. In the second step, it will therefore be outlined how, on his view, the causes are supposed to be defined for the growing child's building up a reservoir of repressed, not further integrated wishes, even in in usual socialization conditions. Second second step. With this normalization of repression, Freud faces the task of characterizing the reflective process through which the intact personality brings about the kind of psychic emancipation that analytical therapy is supposed to help attain in the case of the ill subject. The final step is to expand on how the conception of individual self-appropriation with with which Freud attempted to solve this task is constituted. constituted. Central to my deliberations is thus the extremely close connection Freud made between individual autonomy and reflective coming to terms with the past, between freedom of the will and biographical working through. I want to show that Freud never doubted, even for a moment, the possibility of freedom of the will, but that he made the step of appropriating one's own will a necessary precondition for it. That will be the main task of my lecture, to show that. (coughs) So I'm coming to the first uh, chapter. In his work, Freud not only relied on assumptions about normal socialization processes to get information about the infant causes of neurotic illnesses. Rather, conversely, he continually draw conclusions 
from the peculiarity of individual neurosis for normal psychic life. This to and fro between pathological diagnosis and analysis of normality, between etiology and personality theory, forms a conceptual threat of his work that gains more and more an independent significance with the increase in scientific maturity. In the end, his theory as a whole, in fact, represents more of a contribution to revising our idea of human subjectivity than a proposed solution to special problems of psychic illness. Already in his interpretation of dreams from 1900, Freud draws on the dream as an example in order to study the non-pathological case of a mental activity characterized by defense strategies. In the, in the acute memory of his or her own dream, every person is confronted, on Freud's view, with a text that is made so alien by omissions and displacements that a key to understanding the self-produced meaning can no longer be found within it. Freud continued his occupation with such irrational clouding of apparently completely normal, healthy psychic life already a year later as he set about writing his treatise on the psychopathology of everyday life. In this new context, he is concerned with initially completely inconspicuous faulty actions, such as slips of the tongue or forgetting, by which even in the intact personality can take on such frequency and persistence that they can no longer be dismissed as mere coincidence. In such in such cases of notorious repetition, everyday mistakes attain the character of symptoms, permitting an insight into the deep-lying defense mechanisms by which even the normal person is molded. With a view to his further researches, Freud can therefore maintain at the end of this study, I quote, that the boundary between nervous norm and abnormity is in flux. Indeed, that we are all, as it is laconically put, and I quote Freud, that we all are a little nervous. From now on, Freud would no longer drop the perspective according to which a constant readiness to produce strange wishes and conspicuous defense attitudes also exist in the apparently intact psychic life. He is consti const constantly in search of the point at which the subject that comes across as completely normal manifests a behavioral expression possessing such bizarre, hardly intelligible traits that it points to the continued systematic influence of archaic residues, resi residues in the individual psyche. An essential step in the direction thus outlined is represented by the short text on mourning and melancholia, that Freud published in 1916 in the Zeitschrift für Psychoanalyse. In his view, the morning in which we cling to a lost love object in a hallucinatory manner departs on gradually from melancholia in which we also experience a drastic reduction in our feeling of self-esteem in addition to the wish fantasy. But it is less what separates these two states from one another, 
that initially interest Freud in his essay than what links them with one another. Both, both mourning and melancholia are psychic reactions to the painful loss of an object in which each time, I quote, an inhibition and constraint of the ego occurs and that in the wish fantasy the loved person's ongoing existence is hallucinated and hence extinguishes, almost without residue, commitment to the social environment. The threshold to pathology is thus already crossed on entering the state of mourning because according to the conventional idea, fantasizing about non-existing objects is a clear sign of the presence of mental confusion. And it is only scientific routine, Freud concludes, that prevents us from taking the corresponding step and adding mourning to psychic illnesses. Both the degree of the painful loss and the intensity of the wish fantasies are in themselves clear indications that a tendency towards pathological denial of reality is already present in the clinical realm of the normal. The usual functions of the ego, which means the essentially essentially those of keeping a check on reality, are suspended because the subject is animated by the primitive wish to maintain communication with the lost love object. A fantastic novel which tries to to show this kind of uh, result of mourning, I mean this kind of uh, forgetting about reality is by uh, this novel by John Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, which is for me a wonderful novel explaining exactly what Freud had in mind, or showing what Freud had in mind. These brief deliberations basically contain more by way of consequences than Freud himself would like to admit to begin with. He does not actually move the conventional boundary between normality and pathology, but shifts the potential for expressing pathological behavior into the sovereign territory of the normal personality itself. Each subject, including that otherwise perfectly adept with reality, is supposed to be able to be sporadically sought out by wishes that would not stand up to being checked with reality. Their their particularly primitive character, namely the fact that they ignore the differentiation between meanwhile erected, erected, between inner and outer, is rather a clear indication that they must stem from unsurmounted relics of early childhood. This view is explicitly confirmed in a short essay that Freud published in the same year at the essay on mourning and melancholia entitled A Metapsychological Supplement to the Theory of Dreams. There Freud deals with the processes which make it possible that in certain affective states taken to be normal, such as mourning, being in love or sleep, the same kind of hallucinatory satisfaction of wishes can take place that we recognize from states of neurotic illness. Of interest here are not the details of the complicated deliberations that Freud develops in his essay, but just the rough schema by which he orients himself in these. The question is, how is it to be explained that the same happens in those relatively usual situations 
as what otherwise goes on only in an accentuated form in pathological conditions. In his answer, Freud starts by assuming that in the states of dreaming, being in love or sleep, the psychic forces in the subject that usually take care of examining reality are paralyzed due either to the intense excitement or greatly reduced attention. In this way, and I quote, a disrubbing of the psychic takes place that allows the hallucinatory mechanisms of early childhood to take possession of the ego. Hence, and I quote again, not only do hidden or repressed wishes reach consciousness, rather these are in full belief also thought of as fulfilled. End of quote. The normal adult is thus also familiar with situations in which the mere wish for an object suffices to experience it mentally as the source of an actual satisfaction. In, in such states, the boundaries between inner and outer, between ideas and reality, are cancelled so that the early primitive mechanism of hallucinatory satisfaction of wishes again grabs a place. All the texts mentioned, starting with the interpretation of dreams through to the metapsychological supplement, agree in discerning the kind of rupture usually suspected only in the psychically ill in intact psychic life too. It can also be said that Freud anthropologizes the potential for conflict between repressed wishes by granting them a power even over the healthy subject. We all occasionally experience situations in which we are confronted with needs and wishes that don't really seem to fit into the rationally attuned network of our remaining wishes. What is peculiar about these desires, however, is not only the degree of their heterogeneity, their incompatibility, but also that they go along with the fantasy in its in itself impossible satisfaction. Thus we obviously reactivate psychic mechanisms which we might suspect of having dominated us in early childhood. However, in the text cited, Freud does not yet seem to possess any really convincing answer to the question as to why repressions should also have played a role in the prehistory of the normal adult. In the case of neurotic illness, he had initially started with the assumption that the cause of such repressions must lie in traumatic events in early childhood, which had been banished to the unconscious due to their threatening character. The symptom is supposed to reflect the comp compulsively returning recollection of a real occurrence, the catastrophic meaning of which the young child was able to protect itself from only by instinctively withdrawing it from consciousness. However, Freud soon replaced this realistic interpretation with a considerably more subtle hypothesis, according to which not an actual event, but the wish for such an event forms the cause for repression. Impulses that the child had to experience as dangerous because they threatened its effective equilibrium were shunted into the unconscious for self-protection reasons from where they produced neurotic symptoms in later life. 
but none of these explanations is suited to making understandable why the intact personality should rapidly be plagued by repressed wishes. In such cases, there is no symptom of illness, there is no hint of suffering that is difficult to bear. We are concerned only with wishes that do not seem to fit in either their content or form into the adult system of endeavors. Freud only finds an answer to the questions linked with this once he had realized that a kind of intersubjective anxiety which the healthy subject must have encountered, which the healthy subject must have encountered in childhood has to be considered the ultimate cause of repression. So I come to the next step in my interpretation. The difficulties Freud has until now in explaining that there is also pathological potential in the completely normal subject result from his assumption that repression sets in at a relatively out-of-the-ordinary point. If only the young child that is confronted either with a traumatic event or a particular intense extravagant drive wish is supposed to have cause for repression, there is hardly any reason with regard to intact personality to impute a reservoir of unconscious wishes. For the fact that this person is without any degree of suffering and exhibits no symptoms of any kind of illness makes it more natural to suppose that one is here concerned with a completely normal, disturbance-free socialization process. How then is it to be made intelligible that unarticulated, non-integrated impulses should also make themselves noticed continually in the healthy person's psychic life. If repression, that is the exclusion from articulation, is bound to preconditions that could only apply to the failed process of formation. Freud thus lacks, it can be said, an idea of the normality of repression. He is unable to explain why there should be cause in every process of socialization to exclude certain drive impulses or wishes from future translation into language and to banish these into a realm of the unconscious. Freud makes the transition to such a more comprehensive conception of repression one significantly better adapted to normality in the second half of the 1920s when he begins to get clearer about the anthropological significance of anxiety for the young child. And it, is not, and it is no coincidence that it is in this phase of his output that deliberations take shape in his theory for the first time that point in the direction of the object relation theory later developed by Donald Winnicott and Melanie Klein. In this context, the text Inhibition, Symptoms and Anxiety that Freud published in, 90, in 26 as a book in the International Psychoanalytic Press assumes particular importance for our considerations. Already with regard to the differentiation in content, its anthropological span and realism about the child's word of experience this text stands out a long way in Freud's work. Again, his gaze is directed, directed 
above all to the causes of repression in the neurotic. But the simple neuroses of daily life, quotation from Freud, are also given enough attention for the healthy person to remain included in the analysis. In a certain way, a continuum is even created between neurotic and completely normal repression because Freud, obviously consciously, no longer attempts to determine the point at which the first turns into the second, that is normal repression, transcends the extent beyond which the development of neurosis is supposed, supposed to come about. The starting point for the argument is a self-correction which Freud undertakes so inconspicuously that it easily avoids being noticed. Until now, we read, he has explained the young child's anxiety as an effective result of the backlash of repression on its experience, namely as an automatic transformation of the cathetic energy of the repressed impulse into anxiety. That was a quote from Freud, the last words. Now, however, he must admit that it could also be exactly the other way round. The young child does not sense anxiety because it is repressing certain drive wishes Rather, it represses because it feels anxiety about certain drive wishes. The modified premise, which now seems considerably more plausible to Freud, nonetheless raises the new problem as to where the anxiety is then supposed to stem from, which in a certain, yet to be more closely designated, conditions occasions the child's repression. The memory image of such an affective state, anxiety, must already be somehow present in the child's psychic life if it is claimed that it is not repression that produces anxiety, but the other way around, anxiety that produces repression. So Freud is struggling with the question, where is this very early anxiety come from in the young child? I mean, that's its main concern in the whole text. It is this question that Freud makes central to his text. On the next 60 to 70 pages, he concerns himself with hardly anything but the search for the origin of the anxiety through which the young child withdraws certain of its dry fishes from continuing articulation. In doing this, the hypothesis that initially most strongly captivates Freud is that of the trauma of birth. In 1924, Otto Rank had published a book in which it was supposed that because of its protected well-being in the womb, the infant reacts to the act of birth with a kind of panic anxiety. Suddenly exposed to the flood of stimuli breaking in from the world, the infant experiences a traumatic shock whose subsequent influences in all later states of anxiety attains validity through the affinity of the physical reaction patterns. The mere fact, so uh, I mean this is a famous theory by Otto Rank who tries to show that all anxieties in human beings are somewhat founded in this uh, uh, trauma of birth. I mean, this is the original experience of anxiety. 
And whenever we later experience anxiety, it is somewhat deeply connected to this first moment, the trauma of birth. The mere fact that Freud goes into this thesis in detail no less than three times reveals how intensely he must have felt it to be a, a theoretical challenge. In any case, he seems convinced that among the various alternatives, the idea of an original trauma of birth still initially provides the best key to explaining the young child's constant readiness for anxiety. However, wherever he comes to speak of Rank's proposal, Freud immediately hints a slight doubts relating to a certain disparity in the explanation. Namely, whereas young children always tend to attacks of panic anxiety when they feel left alone, the traumatic shock at birth lacks any relation to being left alone in such a way. Because, and I quote Freud, in the intrauterine life there was no object whose disappearance might have been experienced as threatening. In all its later anxious behavior, the child is directed towards a danger for which the trauma of birth could not have provided the triggering schema. For due to the fetus' lack of an object relation, the threat of being left alone is something that could not have been experienced in any way by the infant itself during the process of being born. That's Freud's attack uh, against Rank. It is this grave objection that now paves the way for Freud's own intersubjective view. It is almost diametrically opposed to the trauma of birth thesis in so far as it recognizes the danger situation that the infant reacts to with panic anxiety, not in the interruption of the intrauterine existence, but in being left alone by the mother who first appears afterwards. It can be said with Arnold Gehlen, famous German philosophical anthropologist who later became a Nazi and then was not creative any longer, that Freud's starting point is the biological fact that human beings are carried by the mother for much less time than with most other animals. From this fact, a premature birth, premature birth both authors, Freud and Gehlen, infer a relatively high degree of organic helplessness and lack of specialization which makes the newly born child heavily dependent on a protective environment right at the beginning. For Freud, the dependency thus affected now results in the infant's more or less biological fixation on its mother, whose care and support is so vitally important for it that the first sign of her disappearance creates the paradigmatic scheme of all that spells danger. From now on, any clue of being left behind without the loved object, the loved object, is the signal to which the child reacts with the same kind of anxiety as befell it when the first, when it first experienced the mother's disappearance. The following passage, which in view of its synthetic power today still demands admiration, 
summarizes all these argumentative steps in a single train of thought. And I quote Freud, The biological point of departure, Freud says, is the long-drawn-out helplessness and dependency of the young human child. As against most other animals, the human's intrauterine existence appears relatively truncated. It is sent into the world less finished than they are. In this way, the influence of the real outer world is intensified. The differentiation of the ego from the it is demanded early on, which increases the significance of the outer world's dangers and enormously enhances the value of the only object that can protect against these dangers and replace the lost intrauterine life. This biological aspect thus produces the first danger situations and creates the need to be loved, which will no longer leave the human. End of quote. I mean, this is, if you want, so an explanation for the dependence of recognition of human beings. I mean, I think it's an anthropological explanation why human beings are especially, in, uh, especially dependent on all forms of recognition. Precisely this latter formulation, which almost literally anticipates a central idea of Winnicott's, might provide cause for further deliberations concerning its consequence for Freud's entire theory. He speaks here, very unusual for him, unusually for him, not of the young child's drive, but of its need. And the content or the direction of such an early need is allocated the expression love, a term that Freud finds a use for only very rarely in his theoretical writings. But for our purposes, it is of more interest how Freud now finds a bridge from this intermediate result back to his initial problem. For the question he actually wants to answer is to what extent a danger-signaling scheme that is grasped as primordial primord primordial anxiety can cause the young child to exempt certain of its drive impulses from the further process of mental organization and to repress them into the unconscious. For Freud, the key to his answer is the idea that signals of a separation from the loved object can originate not only from the outer world but also from the inside. For then, namely, every wish the child senses, but which is at the same time experienced as incompatible with the continued existence of the love it longs for, must trigger in the child the old, original separation anxiety. If this is so, that is, if the young child is also capable of perceiving its own wishes as warning signals of a possible loss of the love object, then according to Freud, it will, it will more or less instinctively do anything to avoid the situation prefigured by the dangerous wish. And the only means it has to this end consists of relinquishing the disagreeable impulse, which is hence dropped as a wish and withdrawn from consciousness. The child, as Freud's line of thought can be summarized, represses all those of its wishes into the unconscious 
the pursuit of which it must experience as endangering the love of its reference person. So as not to be separated from its mother or another loved person, it builds up within itself a reservoir of unarticulated, primitively left wishes that henceforth continue to exist with it like, I quote Freud, an alien body. With these deliberations, Freud has created a concept of repression that can also be applied to the completely inconspicuous normal socialization process. Assuming the infant's constitutional helplessness, every child will, will sense a panic anxiety about being separated from the caregiving reference person and will hence also try to somehow to suppress such wishes as might endanger that relation. And like all others, will thus finally develop in itself a potential for repressed tendencies. For Freud, this normalization of repression results in the consequence that the intact personality too is not free of the restrictions that are imposed on the psychically ill subject in an incomparably more intense manner. Like the neurotic, though well below the threshold to suffering, the healthy person is exposed to an intervention by unconscious wishes that interrupt, I quote Freud, the free commerce among all his psychic components and occasionally force involuntary utterances. Among the consequences that this, I quote again, functional restriction of the ego brings, Freud centers on the endangerment of freedom of the human will. The individual's ability to form a rational will that is transparent to herself and resolute has extremely narrow limits when alienating wishes constantly intervene, intentions can no longer be implemented or conversely acquire an unbuilt priority. In such situations, familiar to us all, our will constantly seems clouded because it is influenced by compulsions or dependencies whose origin we cannot see clearly. As relatively widespread examples of such disturbances of the will, Freud names the lack of desire to eat and inhibited work. But of course, much less spectacular cases can be also draw, be drawn on from normal everyday life that show how often the subject's own will is not under its command. Now, the language Freud uses in these passages already shows that he does not want to present the compromise to freedom of the will as something constituting an immovable, immovable fact of human nature. Rather, to speak of such disturbances as forming, I quote, a functional restriction of the ego means making the ego's normal prosperity, its functional efficiency, dependent on overcoming all such compromises. With his psychological, psychological functionalist terminology, Freud appears to adopt a normative perspective in which human welfare is bound to the presumption of eliminating such clouding of the will as origin originates from its unarticulated childhood needs. 
the human can namely only enjoy its proper nature, the ability to freedom of the will, to its full extent, when no restrictions are imposed on its functioning. Between the ego's functional efficiency and human welfare, one can also say a link in conditions exists for Freud because he is convinced that only rationally weighing up wishes, values and reality can guarantee successful living. However, at this point of an almost Aristotelian ethics, the question arises as to which means Freud provides the individual subject with to attain such a form of as unclouded a freedom of the will as possible. If the intact personality is already constantly caught up with by wishes and tendency that it can appear non-transparent and alienating to itself, then it is completely unclear at first glance how the aim of functionally efficient, indeed free will, is ever supposed to be attainable. To be sure, for the psychically ill, Freud foresees the instrument of analytic therapy to find a way out. Through the associative interpretations offered by the analyst, the patient is supposed to learn to attain insight into the early childhood causes of its symptoms and in this way to regain a certain latitude for its freedom of will. But which means of attaining freedom of the will does Freud recommend to the subject that, although free from the degree of suffering of the ill, is nonetheless also familiar with that clouding of its will that arises from repressions of the past? To the question just outlined, Freud provides an answer to an answer that only seldom rises to the surface thematically in his work. He is convinced, namely, as a matter of course, that we have that we have all always adopted an attitude towards ourselves in which we try to appropriate our own will by means of recollective work. So I come to the last uh, chapter. In the steps of his conception, Reconstructed so far, Freud makes use of the methodological means of a naturalistic self-objectivation. For the purpose of gaining knowledge, namely he describes the pathological processes of repression or defense as though these were natural causal processes that fulfill certain functions in the reproduction of human creatures. However, with the transition to the question of how subjects react to these restrictions in their ego's abilities, Freud shifts his perspective by now orienting himself according to the self-understanding of persons that feel themselves restricted. The reflective feats with which ruptured subjects want to free their willing from non-perspicious influences can only be explored from the respective subjective inner perspective of the subject affected. From this new perspective, what could previously appear to be a law-like natural process must now be comprehended as something produced by the subject itself, namely as a form of repression attributable, attributable to itself. 
the account of the reflexive process through which such a recovery is supposed to be possible forms the core of Freud's conception of the individual self-relation. What is pe pe peculiar to this conception is surely that the determinations developed in it are presented not as normative ideals, but as completely normal feats that every healthy subject is capable of, a, of as a matter of course. The human is for Freud less a self-interpreting being than one that critically scrutinizes itself constantly looking through its own past to see where the traces of compulsions that have remained unconscious can be found in it. It would therefore have been quite alien for Freud to hold it as a demand from the outside that the subject shows interest in its life history. Rather, he presupposes as a matter of course, that every person possesses a deep-lying interest in forming a will that is as free as possible by critically reappraising its own previous history. It may be that the demanding traits of his own personality are reflected in Freud's image of humans, which is conspicuously opposed to the pessimism of his cultural theory. It may also be, as Thomas Mann has supposed, that Freud's close link with Romanticism, which was already, which was already concerned with the emancipatory potential of returning to contemplate one's own unconscious, comes to light in this. In any case, it is certain that from the beginning Freud credited humans with the ability to attain a will that is, a free as, as, is as free as possible through its own intellectual effort. To this extent, the conception of the individual self-relation that he develops merely retraces the conscious processes that are supposed to take place pre-theoretically in every subject. The process that Freud is interested, interested in begins with a person sensing in herself an alienating wish or a notoriously recurrent conspicuous thought association. None of these mental activities fits into the concerned subject system of endeavors and they all fulfill the condition of her not really being able to be understand them. Of course, noticing such a difference already demands adopting not merely an observer's perspective towards oneself, but the perspective of interested attentiveness, solicitude even. If, that is, one's own wishes and beliefs were taken to be independent facts, as though they could be somehow discovered in, one, in one's insight, it could not be subjectively inquired at all whether they result in an intelligible that is meaningful interrelation. Freud presumes, as I have said, that human subjects naturally have such an understanding attitudes towards their psychic life. So Freud is presupposing that we are, let's say, that we have a hermeneutic attitude to ourselves. We try permanently to understand what's going on in our and we not only try to understand what's going on in our psychic life, 
but we do it with a certain attitude, namely a kind of wish for coherence on attitude, on interest in coherence. They do not behave indifferently towards their mental productions, but due to their ego persistently aim to integrate them in a rational whole. It can also be said that in the subject's relation to itself, to its mental activities, a constantly effective anticipation of a meaningful, intelligible connection between all its own wishes and beliefs is presumed. So we all observe ourselves as if we were Gadamer or Davidson. In addition, Freud seems to want to claim that this hermeneutic process of disclosure takes place in a form possessing features of an inner dialogue. Thus, he often uses metaphors from the political world to sketch the idea that the psychic instances should, if possible, maintain a relationship of free exchange and commerce among one another. In such a communication process, the superego takes on, as it is put in inhibition symptoms and anxiety, the voice of ethical and aesthetic critique, while the task falls to the ego of thematizing the necessity of adjusting to reality. And in the sense of integrability, all the wishes and beliefs can then count as rational that are approved in these two instances dialogical test procedure. As long as the wishes thus rejected are admittedly held only to be non-rational, they do not yet have to mean any particular irritation for the affected subject. We all develop intentions or endeavors often enough that on reflection quickly prove to be incompatible with reality or our moral conscience. To this must first be added the fact of constant recurrence or compulsiveness, but also a high degree of unintangibility before such wishes provide occasion to deal with their origin and prehistory more intensively. It should be borne in mind that this return to contemplate one's own biography cannot be motivated here by a degree of suffering. The healthy person dealt with by Freud, Freud's conception of the individual self-relation does not suffer in the clinical sense from its opaque, compulsively recurrent wishes, but probably initially feels them to be merely tedious or obstructive in realizing its own respective aims. So in order to be able to explain why such an intact subject should also be caused in the situation described to deal with its life history, Freud must venture a risky step for which he lacks a reliable justification. He has to impute to every person, whether healthy or ill, an interest in pressing for the production of a will that is as free as possible. Returning to contemplate one's own process of formation, which Freud also ascribed to the normal subject as a reaction to the confrontation with irrational wishes, is simultaneously the performance and expression of this interest. We turn back to our life history in such moments because we want our willing to be free of elements that are unintelligible to us and not willed. And Freud has to presuppose an interest in such a free will. I mean, I think uh, there are certain explanations for how we can 
defend such a concept, and the most interesting one are probably those by Habermas's concept of emancipatory interest and um, Jonathan Lear's um, making use of the concept of eros in Freud. But uh, this is all quite uh, risky. It is only with this return that the reflective process sets in which can be comprehended with Freud as appropriation of the history of one's own formation. The intact subject starts retracing the development process it has itself experienced in order to explore the biographical situation in which the alienating, hardly intangible wish might have arisen. Here different methods of reflection that are already intuitively familiar to us mesh well, mesh with one another because we have already got to know them in our process of maturing as appropriate means of determining our personal identity. We have at our disposal different narrative schemata with the help of which we can represent our life as a more or less conflict-ridden formation history. And from this observation point, we can try to find out retrospectively the point at which the individual elements of our current system of endeavors originate. Introspection and genealogy, narrative self-assurance and reconstruction of individual wishes and intentions complement one another to allow the breaks that open up in our individual history of needs to become transparent. So Freud is also presupposing that this kind of methods we originally have already, yeah? introspection and genealogy. This is what we permanently activate in looking back to us and in trying to recollect our life history. To the, de to the degree that such a genealogy, genealogy of our wishes is carried out, we then finally come across a pattern of interaction that dates back a long time, often fixed to, a certain, key, to certain key experiences which seem to be somehow barred from our memory. We don't really get further in our individual attempt at reconstruction, perhaps even feel a massive defense, sensing in any case a certain discomfort in daring to go back behind the blocked threshold of our biography. For Freud, this moment of, I quote, negation represents the linchpin of our self-appropriation process. For it is the question of whether we are in a position to penetrate the repression becoming manifest in the negation that decides the success of our effort to increase the degree of our freedom of will. Appropriation is not a term Freud systematically used in his own theoretical language, but he could have accommodated in his approach without difficulty because with it the same feat is meant that Freud himself also thought of as the individual self-relations direction of movement. In the process of appropriation, we attempt to make something that is initially alien or unintelligible our own by comprehending it as something previously separated and hence ultimately belonging to our person. The subject that has advanced in its biographical biographical self-contemplation through to the point of a negation has, according to Freud, already almost reached the threshold 
to such an appropriation. For the negative negating reaction already contains the pointer to a biographical location at which a certain wish was not pursued further out of anxiety about the intersubjective consequences, that is, was repressed into, a, into the unconscious and subsequently existed here in a disfigured, unarticulated form. Perhaps it could also be said that what more is needed in the reflective moment of negation is just individual resoluteness, perhaps also the help of friends or confidence, so as intellectually to elicit the biographical circumstances that at the time led to the separation of the today irritating unfamiliar, unfamiliar wish. Guided by the indirect hints contained in our memories recoil, we recollectively prepare the way back to the past situation in which we have separated off an element of our will out of intersubjective anxiety. The process of a recovering one's own will is, of course, for Freud, not yet completed with this intellectual realization of the causal circumstances. We must first still learn to accept for ourselves what cognitive insight yields before the process of appropriation can reach a successful conclusion. In a marvelous passage of his short essay on negation from 25, Freud makes a distinction that aims precisely at this last step in which remembering and working through is completed. And I quote, Negation is a way of taking note of what is repressed, actually already a cancellation of the repression, though admittedly not an acceptance of what is repressed. One sees how the intellectual function here parts with the, with the effective process. With the help of negation, only the one consequence of the repression process is reversed, that its ideational content does not reach consciousness. From this, a kind of intellectual acceptance of what is repressed results, while what is essential to the repression continues to exist. So Freud makes a distinction between intellectual acceptance and effective acceptance. Unfortunately, Freud does not expand any further in this passage or in other passages of his work on, on how the effective process is to be constituted in which the taking back of repression is first actually completed. It also remains unclear with him which element of repression is, it is that must be assumed to be effective in the subject's concluding act of self-appropriation. More clearly than in other texts, Freud here initially distinguishes between an intellectual, which means merely cognitive insight, and an effective acceptance in the process of individual reappraisal. Whereas the first process ought to consist of learning to comprehend the circumstances of repression, or what is repressed itself as a fact in one's own biography, the effective process would have to have the aim of retrospectively accepting this fact as a motivational element in one's own personality. To this extent, the process of reflectively appropriating one's own will would only be concluded once the previously repressed fact of repression or what was repressed 
is accepted into the given system of endeavors in such a way that they form now on decisively shape our that they from now on decisively shape our self-understanding, our view of the world and others. If this is what Freud had in mind with his concept of effective acceptance, then it still has to be clarified whether what is to be accepted is more what was repressed itself or the fact that the repression took place at the time. In the passage quoted, Freud seems to want to say that what was repressed, that is, the intentional content of the repressed wish, must itself be retrospectively accepted for one's own self-understanding. But such a view would amount to the peculiar consequence that we are able to articulate and accept the object of repression even before we had emotionally accepted the fact of repression. Hence, I believe that we should here deviate from Freud's view and comprehend effective acceptance of repression as the goal and end point of self-appropriation. Starting with the negation, we must learn to accept through to the effective level the fact that anxiety about losing the loved person had once necessitated us to repress a threatening wish. And it is the emotional admission of this anxiety that first allows us retrospectively to accept the performed separation as something we ourselves willed and thus to reappropriate it as something of our own. To be sure, such recognition of one's own anxiety does not by itself reorganize the previously repressed wish. But at the same time, it is the only way that we can learn after the event to mentally reorganize the content locked within it and to give this a propositional form. In a formal respect, Freud's conception of the individual self-relation is thus very much like Kierkegaard's idea. Also, Freud was always rather skeptical about such philosophical extensions of his theory. The central importance of his insight is lost if such comparisons, comparisons are not drawn on. Neither for him nor for Kierkegaard is attaining freedom of the will the result of a one-off momentarily performed act of becoming aware. We do not become assured of our individual freedom through an instantaneous reflection which shows us that our endeavors and wishes are the expression only of our own will. For such self-assurance, what is needed is rather a protracted and strenuous process of working through and remembering in which we attempt against persistent resistance to appropriate retrospectively the previously separated of elements of our will. Since the cause of the separation was always anxiety, with Freud namely anxiety about separation from the love object, we must hence succeed in accepting that anxiety is an integral component of our personality. That's the closeness to Kierkegaard. To the extent that we succeed in such acceptance of anxiety, 
in our system of endeavors, we purify our will of influences and elements that we could not understand as self-willed. The human self-relation, as Freud's great insight can be summarized, consists in the process of self-appropriation of one's will by effectively admitting to anxiety. Thank you very much. We have time for questions. So, any? Yeah, thank you very much for for a marvelous uh, account. I just wonder whether you could explore a bit more the, the origin of this fundamental problem of the will, what you refer to as possibly the emancipator interest. This seems to be a kind of coming out of nowhere. But how would one back this up? It's the most difficult point of the whole thing. Um, I mean, in, in Freud's case, I think he's simply presupposing that we have this interest. He's not explaining it. But, I mean, he's... Uh, and one could speculate that he took it from self-experience. Yeah? I mean, if you study uh, Freud's letters or the autobiographical reflections, you always will find that he describes himself as trying to overcome inhibitions of his will. It's almost as this is so normal for him that he uh, is presupposing that this is something inbuilt in the human personality. But this is not an explanation. It's simply uh, an explanation for why Freud simply is obviously presuming it or presupposing it. I, th I, think, I think this, probably this is uh, already one of the um, key interests of this lecture is to show that um, Freud takes it as being a normal component of human beings to have an interest, a deeply built interest in, in this free will. He, he wouldn't he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, uh, he wouldn't describe the human being as he is doing it, namely as a being which permanently struggles with its own past, if he wouldn't presuppose such an interest. Now the question is, do we have any further explanations or how can we justify the pre, pre supposition of such an interest. I mean, one explanation is simply to say it's a component of reason. I mean, because we as humans are characterized by reason and we are growing up, let's say, in, a, in, in reason and by reason, yeah? it's the way we learn. 
and the way we become human beings is by becoming reasonable beings looking for uh, looking for reasons in how we act and how we judge therefore an element of this reason is to have to, to have an interest in reason I mean this is a classical philosophical explanation for it you can find it already with, with Kant yeah? Kant is sometimes presupposing that reason has in itself an interest in, re in itself so it's struggling for reason which means it, it has an interest in overcoming all what is not reason and therefore we as humans we simply can't stand that, that there are these elements which obviously we have to take as something we have not created by ourselves yeah? and we are not really as I wanted to show it's nothing we really suffer from it's not that we go to the therapist but somewhat we don't like it I mean it comes back and back and we want to I mean that's at least Freud's picture yeah? I mean you can deny whether this picture is still uh, of uh, validity today empirically but at least he seems to propose that we are like that we don't want to live with such things namely that there are wishes not simply non-rational wishes that's easy yeah? we all have non-rational wishes, wishes but wishes which have another structure namely that they are they have, they have a more primitive form and they come back and they simply disturb us in our endeavors in our everyday life and the attitude to it is working through namely a, a, a kind of recollecting of one's own life history and this is not something as Freud sees it, which comes as a demand or which we have to learn, it's almost automatically. And here, at this point, he, he has, he's presupposing this interest and we have to give, look for further explanations. I, I take it as the most interesting, philosophically the most interesting point. Where comes this interest from? And as I said, uh, there may be explanations which take it as a kind of conceptual component of having reasons of being rational beings namely having also an interest in overcoming uh, let's say limits of our will I can't say more there is a question from Bob. Um, I was just wondering in the light of your earlier work on recognition and, and mutual acknowledgement that, that um, constitutes the individual or the critical theory more generally that looks for how deeply socially constituted we are, you know, right. basically these anxieties at the bottom of it you find society. Something I was surprised and, and, and wondering, I was always waiting for when you will talk about the social. Instead you you know, in the end you go to Kierkegaard and, and the introspective way of, of dealing with that basic anxiety. Is that a kind of revocation of your, of your earlier thinking about these issues or are you very critical of that? I couldn't get the answer out of what you said in the end. 
No, there is one link. Um, no, it's not, it's not this kind of self-criticism. It's simply an interest in another part of it. You see, the, the, uh, a problem of talking about intersubjective relations in the way I was doing it, namely to presuppose that we as human beings are depending on recognition and on mutual recognition, there was always something missing, namely uh, how to explain that dependency on recognition on a, on a deeper level yeah um, I mean normally you presuppose it and it makes sense I mean I think normally we don't have too many doubts that we are somewhat depending on recognition by others yeah it's almost self-evident but it's not yet a full explanation of it and I think I meanwhile accept this idea of anxiety by Freud as an explanation for it. It's a deeply rooted anxiety of human beings for which we have to find an explanation in order to explain why the lack of recognition has this kind of psychic uh, importance or the other way around why we are not looking for recognition because I think we don't look for recognition but why we are depending on it in our psychic health. And so the, the, the middle part of this lecture where I talk about this um, intersubjective concept of anxiety is somewhat the link to the other stuff where society comes in. Because now what you can do is you can start to, to, to differentiate between different forms of this helplessness Freud is speaking of and you can even uh, you can even differentiate it be between different forms of that anxiety yeah? it's not only the anxiety of being left or be, being left alone by the mother but you can say there is there are uh, more differentiated form of this anxiety is being left by the group being left by the society and so on. So, I mean, there is an anthropological core which I think I can now describe with Freud to explain our dependency on others. Uh, and the other, uh, I don't know whether it's a link, uh, but I always took it as a kind of missing element when, uh, as long as I was speaking of intersubject intersubjective recognition as as a core of social reality not to have a sufficient concept of the subject also as a self-recognizing person yeah? so that the process of recognition is not only something which, which happens between us but also uh, in relation to ourselves so I started to think about what might it mean to describe a human being as a self-recognizing person or subject. And I think the first uh, thing I could now found, find out with the help of Freud is this extremely interesting, and I think he is really um, presupposing it, that kind of hermeneutical attitude to oneself, which is extremely interesting, which means we are, we are experiencing 
experiencing ourselves with uh, the hypothesis of uh, being free, understandable, transparent, and free. It's it's what Gadamer would describe as. Uh, now I have only the German word Vorgriff of Vollkommenheit. I don't know what that is in. Maybe you can help. Me. You will have to. Yeah, help in the Germans, uh, <laughs> in the. Uh, yeah, something. The anticipation of perfection. Yeah, something which is inbuilt in in the normal reading of a text. Yeah, when we read a text, we make this anticipation, as Gadamer is describing it, or Davidson is saying, we are in trying to understand other humans. We have this anticipation of uh, homo of of consistency. For example, all this is working in our relation to ourselves in the same way, I think. And therefore, we always are trying to understand our own inner experiences already in the, under the condition of this anticipation. So that something which doesn't fit really uh, starts to make us nervous. Yeah? And it's only because of that. So, the idea of self-recognition uh, then becomes a little bit more uh, plausible, yeah? what that means. For example, that there are ways of relating to oneself which obviously are violations of these preconditions. If we start to understand ourselves as beings which uh, the, the inexperiences the, the of which are mere facts, then obviously we are violating this kind of self-attitude. Freud is interested in and is describing, and so on and so on. So there are certain consequences of what I'm trying to do here, which all I would not understand as a separation from the tradition of critical theory, but as one way of making it more plausible. Um. Uh, at one point in particular, um, I wasn't sure whether you're explaining that when Freud says that to attain a free will, freedom of the will, um, when we need to, people need to reflect, introspect, and recognize repressions and understand where a particular feeling, idea, mode of behavior came from and why. Um, were you saying that he thought then that having understood it and uh, properly, then you should banish that repression and its effects, uh, therefore make your behavior and your ideas and so on would be free from it from then on, or that you look at it, see it, understand it, and then accept it. This is part of me. I think like this, or I'm likely to behave like that, because, well, I understand why. Um, and it's not, a, you know, it's not a problem. I know why, but that's just me. Which of those? The last. I mean... Uh as far as I understand, you see, I mean, the problem in, in reading these works of Freud with the special interest I have is that he normally speaks uh, about all this in reference to the neurotic subject, 
not to the non- I mean, he's not really explicitly taking the normal subject as a reference point of his own ideas. So um, it's not easy to find, let's say, between the lines what he would think of uh, the subject which does not really suffer from certain reoccurrences of somewhat strange wishes but uh, is affected by it in a quite normal way as I I guess we all are and Freud believed we all are so the question is how should we describe the normal attitude of such of those subjects uh, towards these occurrences and I think he again it's not a recommendation he's really uh, articulating it's something he believes we do namely that we do not banish it but that we if we are normal persons and having this kind of reason having this kind of interest in our own freedom namely our interest in functioning that I think he is equating that yeah functioning for him and that's the Aristotelian point I think functioning for him means to allow your reason flourish let's say yeah then you accept somewhat accept that you once uh obviously repress something so what you the question is what do you accept then that's not so clear in in Freud I think or I would like him to say we have to accept the fact of anxiety which means we have to accept that it was something of us which was the reason for the repression which means we take back in ourselves the causes for that repression. It's a part of us. That's appropriation. Yeah? We appropriate something which was excluded from us or somewhat alienated from us or separated from us by attributing to us that kind of anxiety so that we can understand the strange wish as self-produced yeah so self-production that's the that's uh, philosophically the point um, we only can appropriate that strange element of our will by accepting that it was our anxiety the anxiety I had of losing that person or that person this kind of intersubjective anxiety it was my anxiety I accept it not only intellectually but emotionally so that because I accept it as part of me I can see the separation as created by me I make it to I make it to a product of me if you want that's in Hegel I mean that's that's Hegel yeah I mean to overcome to overcome uh, the object or to overcome um, everything which is alien to you means 
to try to figure out that you have created it. And But you only can make that step by accepting that it's your anxiety. Uh, so we have to accept that we are anxious beings. So I'll take one last question here. Very brief, please. Thank you very much for your lecture, first of all. And secondly, uh, I have a question, because um, you seem to be saying, actually, that Freud's great contribution to the theory of subjectivity uh, can be accepted in the light of all his other sort of things that have been uh, rejected by the science, can be ac accepted, again, only on the basis of rationalizing that. So my simple question is, do you really think that the unconscious through the process of lucid awareness, through the liberation, can actually be all translated to the language. So can we ever make all the unconscious transparent? I accept, and I thank you very much for acknowledging for the imaginary foundation of our social order, because that, to me that's what you were basically mm -hmm. saying. But, but uh, I think Freud said that actually unconscious can never be made all transparent to us, although it's inescapable that only through this process of deliberation and lucidity we can actually hope to become more free. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, in, in, uh, shortly before the end of this lecture, I tried to make a distinction uh, between accepting the, the, the repressed content or accepting the causes for repression. And what I think is possible is the second, namely accepting anxiety as part of ourself, accepting anxiety in the past in front of specific persons probably or groups or whatever. Uh, that does not mean to accept the repressed wish, which means to reappropriate that wish, I think there is, a, there is a difference. And I don't believe that by accepting anxiety as a com or specific forms of anxiety as a component of ourselves immediately leads to a reappropriation of the content of the repressed wish. Because that if you have that belief that that's one and the same process, you would have the idea that at a late moment in our life we can simply re By accepting anxiety as a component of myself, I then simply can also re-articulate the in the past repressed wishes, and that I don't see. Yeah, I mean, let's say I don't... Um, I, I would be more agnostic here. I'm not sure. I mean, probably some do, some not. I, 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 don't, I don't have a strict thesis here. So I don't believe that we are structurally not able, and I don't believe that we are simply able to re-articulate all these repressed wishes. Well, we're going to close now. Thank you all for coming and thank you very much Professor Axel Honneth for a very stimulating lecture tonight. Thank you.